Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 312 of the podcast. It is July 31st, 2018. Joining me today is Jeff Hunter, author of the excellent and relatively recently released book, Patient-Centered Strategy, A Learning System for Better Care. Jeff was with the ThetaCare Health System in Wisconsin uh, for 24 years, where he was um, at the end the Senior Vice President of Strategy and Marketing. After retiring from ThetaCare, he's been a faculty member for Catalysis, and he has started his own consulting firm, Jeff Hunter Strategy. You can find links to all of that, a link to his book and other things that we mention in the episode by going to leanblog.org slash 312. In today's podcast, we discuss a number of topics, including how a good strategy is a necessary input for a strategy deployment management process, some of the problems with traditional approaches to strategic planning, and why an iterative plan-do-study-adjust approach works better than static plans. Thanks for listening. Hi, Jeff. Thank you for joining us here on the podcast today. How are you? Great, Mark. Thanks for the invitation. Looking forward to this. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to um, letting you, you know, talking about your book, uh, Patient-Centered Strategy, letting people learn about that. Um, before we get into the book and the topics there, could you start off, you know, introducing yourself and uh, a little bit about your career path? Sure. I, I've always been in the field in health administration um, on senior leadership teams, always had a responsibility for strategy, uh, among some other things. You know, a long time ago in my career, I actually spent a couple of stints as a rural hospital administrator. Uh, but then as I began working more in systems, um, got more focused on the strategy role and then was accountable for other senior leaders. Activities, uh, marketing, philanthropy, e-health of all things, and and those types of roles. I spent uh, the last uh, 24 years of that with ThetaCare in Appleton, Wisconsin, as a senior leader, and uh, that's where I got my introduction uh, to lean thinking. Um, since then, I retired from ThetaCare three years ago, and since then, um, I've continued my own path, trying to learn more by uh, interacting with Catalysis um, and their clients, and uh, with uh, other industries as they try to. And, and what I've been doing is facilitation of strategic thinking, and that's really where kind of this system has. Um, been built is uh, how we can turn strategy from uh, an event that we do every once in a while to a capability that leadership teams have. Yeah, and and by that system you mean as as you you refer to in the book uh, a strategic management system, building that through your work with other organizations. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. In fact, the full title of the book is Patient Centered Strategy: A Learning System for Better Care. So we see it as a subsystem uh, for strategic management. It's a subsystem of an organization's entire lean management system. Yeah, and that's definitely one of the themes we'll talk about today. Um, as, 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 you've already, uh, as you've already said, moving from strategy is an uh, event that happens, uh, creating a, a report every three or five years to becoming more of an um, ongoing learning system. Listeners um, you know, un undoubtedly know about 
what you might call PDCA or PDSA cycles. And um, I think, you know, your, your book does a great job of articulating how that ap applies to strategies. So, you know, can, can you maybe introduce the book a little bit before we delve into those topics? Um, you know, who, who, how, how do you summarize the book? What's the intended audience? And, and maybe even talk a little bit about how the book came to be. Well, the, yeah, the, the book came to be um, really at the request of John Toussaint and the team at Catalysis. Um, we were all experiencing the same thing as we were trying to introduce lean to healthcare organizations. We continued uh, to see adoption of the daily improvement system but it was being hindered, if you will, um, by overburden that was occurring from the lack of strategic choice making. And we had used some of these techniques actually at ThetaCare and then John had seen them and thought they were pretty effective and we used them at Catalysis. Um, some of these techniques to make strategic choices, um, decide what's important now, defer other things for later, figure out how to deploy them through rapid learning cycles. And he thought that that was very effective and really wanted the content built out around that. And so, again, over the last three years, that's really been kind of the, the mission is to flesh this out, um, not just as a series of interesting tools, um, but as a system that does require behaviors of senior leaders um, to be able to, if you will, um, foster that kind of innovation and foster that kind of uh, improvement mentality um, in their culture. And so, Jeff, who would you say the intended audience in is? I mean, would you hope every hospital – C-suite executive picks up the book and uh, and learns from it, or how how do you frame who who should be reading this? Yeah, it really is intended for the C-suite um, because um, I learned the hard way that I had to change my behaviors if I was going to model the way for my teams to be able to create greater value for their customers. It, it took a lot of change on my part. So I try to tell that story in the book um, as an introduction. And then we get into the system that we've learned that does require these senior leaders to model plan, do, study, adjust thinking. Because if the senior leaders can apply plan, do, study, adjust thinking to the strategy process, it, it builds the muscle that's required in the organization for PDSA to be applied at, at every level. So, you know, it's, it's applicable for uh, the C-suite. It's also applicable for the central improvement office people who are trying to coach up to the C-suite um, to help engage them in this, in this uh, you know, transformation to a, a, a high-performing organization. Yeah, when you, and when you talk about you had to change your behaviors, um, that's something that, that John Toussaint has talked about from his time uh, as a CEO when you were working for, for him. So I imagine with John setting that example of, um, you know, and he tells a story about, you know, frontline staff coaching him up or challenging him, or it was a manager asking, you know, when are you going to manage differently? Did imagine it helped, or I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, um, you know, how, how it helped to have John as CEO setting that tone. 
It was uh, critical for me. I, I thought I was all in and supportive of lean for the three, first three years of, of ThetaCare's adoption of it. But all I was doing was cheerleading. I didn't think it had anything to do with me or, or what I did. And as I saw John change his style, I mean, John jokes about this a lot, that he was the epitome of a command and control type uh, leader when he first became CEO. And when I saw how this was changing him, and the discussions I was having with him and his challenge to me of the, the fact that I wasn't seeing the possibilities of, of lean and how it could impact what I do and, and how I could impact the organization. Um, he gave me a, an assignment to help him figure out how the senior leadership team can apply lean so that the senior leadership team is actually creating more value. And that's what you know, got me on the journey. Um, that called upon me to, to question all of the fundamental thinking that I had been taught for all those years in the old management school, if you will. I had to question everything. I had to get out of my office. I mean, I thought that that's where the value was created in my office. Um, it changed everything from how I uh, related to direct reports, where I related to direct reports, um, what the nature of my activities were. Um, and so it, it, but again, that took a long time. That, that wasn't an overnight thing. Sure. That took years. And, and that's why I still do this today, is I still feel like I'm very early in on this. I feel like I'm late to the game. I feel like if I had learned this sooner, I would have been better at developing people. And so that's why I stay with this. I continue to learn so much and it helps me develop people. Yeah. So and as, as we delve in and we'll talk more about, you know, strategy and that process. I mean, I think it's interesting to frame strategy as iterative learning, developing people and, and not thinking of it as, you know, a, a document or a plan. And, and maybe that's part of, you know, as you put it, questioning how things are done. So you know, we'll, we'll talk more about that in the context of challenging how strategy is done. Um, but I wanted to ask you first, uh, you know, a lot of healthcare organizations are or have been embracing strategy deployment as part of a lean management system. Um, I've talked about that with, with um, uh, in different guests in previous podcasts, including Dean Gruner, who succeeded John as uh, CEO at Fedicare. But before we talk about strategy deployment, I mean, I guess there's a more fundamental question, Jeff, of, you know, what, well, what is strategy? How do we know if we have a strategy that's worth deploying? Yeah, I mean, the, the, I was always taught that strategy is about uh, creating unique value. So whether you're in American healthcare or Canadian healthcare or South Africa or in any other industry, strategy is about what we do differently from others, what makes us so unique um, in the eyes of our customers and in the value that we create for customers. And that uniqueness is something that we do through how we do things. It comes through activities. So I've, I'm just standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, people who have been before me on this, but that's what, what strategy is, is while there are so many things that occupy um, our attention, basic operational effectiveness, coming to work, doing our job, always trying to make sure that we do that job better. 
uh, what I like to call big rocks, the big projects that organizations have to undertake, you know, technology systems and facilities and those types of things. Um, we've got to carve out some time. I was always taught that that's, you know, 80, 90% of an organization's time. But we've got to, in addition to that, spend some time figuring out what we are going to do differently that is going to create a unique value for customers. And that's what strategy is to me. Mm-hmm. And, and so how does that idea of unique value or um, differentiation, how, how does that apply in healthcare with, with hospitals? Because I, I think the old mindset has been that every hospital should pretty much do everything, provide every type of care, every procedure, um, you know, with, with the exception of obviously, you know, there are very, uh, some very specialized organizations, but it seems like it's one extreme or the other. Like, you know, all we do here is orthopedic surgery or here we all, you know, the only thing we do is oncology or we do everything. So how, how does that um, discussion about strategy and um, unique proposition apply in healthcare? It, it has been a, a challenge um, historically. We, we have, you know, become an industry where the incumbents, uh, the, the large hospital organizations have seen themselves kind of as all things to all people in a 45 mile radius or uh-huh. some geographic radius. And so it, it has been a challenge to, to get healthcare organizations to ask themselves, what do they do for unique segments? And they didn't have to for a long time because uh, every year our revenue would go up. There was more demand for our services and we were able to raise our prices. And, and so there was plenty of demand to go around. And so imitation was the, you know, what we did. Uh, we all built the same buildings and bought the same technology and, hired the same people and ran the same ads, making the same claims. Um, but that gravy train stopped years ago. I mean, demand for hospital services across the country is, is uh, inpatient services is declining. Outpatient services is flattening. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of, as much as healthcare is a large and growing business, a lot of that business, the market share is shifting to the, the, not the incumbents, but the new entrants. And so it's at this point that the incumbents have got to start thinking about what is it that we actually do that, that creates a value and creates unique value. We just didn't have to do that before. So can you talk a little bit, I mean, do you know, like in general organizations out there that are um, you know, scaling back services, or I, I remember talking to somebody at the summit um, from a mid- Midwestern city where they, uh, their health system quite literally has three different hospitals within a five minute drive. Um, they were delivering, doing labor and delivery at all of those hospitals. And they've made, you know, what's I'm sure been a challenging, you know, controversial decision uh, at two of those hospitals, they are going to consolidate all of their labor and delivery at the children's hospital uh, of those three, um, figuring that for one, if there are problems, you've got children's hospital, uh, neonatal ICU and, and specialists right there. And, you know, I think there's also the idea that, you know, through repetition comes quality and improvement. Um, what, what, what are some of your thoughts around that challenge? Well, we certainly had to go through a, a lot of that. One, we were one of the um, f- first uh, 
health systems a long time ago, about 20 years ago, to consolidate uh, the heart surgery operations from two hospitals uh, just into the one hospital and continue doing interventional cardiology at the other hospital. Um, that was pretty unique at the time, and that was not an easy decision at the time. Uh, then we had to take on the idea that both of our um, uh, uh, pediatric care units, our inpatient pediatric care units, had an average daily census of one and a half. Mm. So we needed to actually get out of the inpatient pediatric business, and we um, uh, had an arrangement with Children's Hospital of Wisconsin to locate a satellite hospital on one of our campuses where we consolidated that care. Once again, those decisions, those I mean, that kind of thinking took over a year of trying to get all the stakeholders to agree to it. So it is very hard to, to get organizations and communities and the stakeholders um, in those organizations to try to begin to look at how effective they are at certain segments. We have a tendency to see everything is interrelated. You just, you can't remove something. Um, it's just going to leave a hole that can't be filled. But actually we found that, that it can. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I guess the other part of this is, is the, you know, the overburden, what you're saying is part of the issue. And that's our, just our legacy of being all things to all people. But the other part of that legacy is when we do our strategic planning, we have a tendency to think of all the things we might have to do for the three to five, next three to five years, and we cram them all into the strategic plan, and we don't make any choices of what's important now versus what we can defer for later. Um, and that's the other part that this system is intended to address is, is how can we make the choices of what really are the critical few things now without just creating big, broad labels that describe all of the possibilities. So I'm um, stepping back, you know, even, you know, to, to, to concepts that could apply or do apply outside of healthcare. When you talk about strategy, one, one thing you touch on in the book, um, you know, builds on the work of um, Arthur Laffley and uh, Roger Martin on, on strategy and, and the idea of, of winning. And you know, what does it mean for an organization to define not just a unique value proposition, but what it means to win. Yeah, and, and I, I have learned so much from uh, Laffley and Martin and the work that Matthew May did to turn mm -hmm. their concepts into actionable, facilitatable learning sessions for organizations. I owe a lot to, to Matt May for that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and he's the one who really got me thinking about this term, you know, winning. What, what, what it did for me is it simplified the terminology. I think of winning as, as a description of the ideal state in plan, do, study, adjust thinking, if you will. Um, you know, what would winning look like and how would I know if I'm winning? So what would winning look like sounds like a vision statement to me. And how I would know if I'm winning sounds like true north metrics to me. So when I put that all together, the ideal state, what would, uh, what's my vision? What's true north? What would winning look like and how would I know if I'm winning? That becomes the aspiration um, that really guides me. And so that's in very important in this system because this system is not about short-term thinking. Gee, what should I do tomorrow because I can't predict the future? You're always looking at your current state and how you got to your current state. Then you look at your vision, that winning aspiration, 
um, and you're guided by that winning aspiration. Then you use the systems thinking principles of idealized design, where you experiment your way toward that vision, one experiment after another. Yeah, and, and Matthew's been uh, a guest on the podcast. It, it's been a while. I would encourage um, listeners um, go back to the podcast feed or leanpodcast.org. You can find past episodes where we talk about some of Matt's learnings uh, from his time at Toyota and, and some of his previous books that are uh, really, really, really excellent books. Um, so we talk about winning and, you know, in, in healthcare, I mean, d- d- does it make people feel uncomfortable? Um, let's say, you know, if I've got a competing health system in town, does my winning mean that that organ- other organization then loses? I mean, do, do, do people in healthcare get uncomfortable with that sort of competitive thinking or is that pretty much par for the course for a lot of executive teams? And, and by losing, I you don't know, mean putting someone out of business, but relatively speaking, losing, you know what I mean? Right. Well, I, I like to think about uh, as, as winning with customers. So what does winning with customers look like? What, again, what does that ideal state look like? And that ideal state has a, you know, is, is an ideal state of a healthy organization. It also could be an ideal state of a healthy community. I thought I might have challenges when I would be using this terminology with um, health systems in Canada, or again, I had a day's experience uh, with a number of health systems from South Africa, and they didn't they weren't. They didn't find any, um, you know, problem with this terminology at all. It, mm-hmm. it 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 created, you know, it brought the idea of vision and true north to life. What would you know? What would good look like? And how would I know if I was getting close? Um, so while I will occasionally get some pushback on the term winning. Um, because people don't see themselves in a competing situation. In all of these countries, they know they are competing for resources. They're competing for attention. They've, uh, I do a lot of work with community agencies. And so the question for all the, each of these community agencies is, what is it that makes me unique and valued in this community so that this community will support my efforts to, to you know, make the lives of people better? Mm-hmm. So coming back to you know, some of the elements of um, you know, strategy planning and execution process and some of these cycles of learning, you've already you know, we've touched on uh, you know, lack of differentiation being a problem, lack of focus. So I wanted to come back to that. When you talk about the choices that organizations have to make, um, this is something uh, John and uh, Toussaint and Dean Gruner both talked a lot about. Um, you know, having to make tough choices about, you know, what are the big necessary initiatives or what are the choices that are most likely to take us in, you know, that direction of, of winning. Can you talk a little bit more about, um, you know, in, in, in your book and your approach, how organizations might rethink um, that, that process of deciding what to work on? Yeah, and you know, to use kind of that that um, um, house of transformation model that John Shook uh, uses, uh, you know, what are our basic beliefs? What's our basic thinking about things? There's some basic thinking that that we have to 
overcome that allows us to, to do this. One is that basic thinking that uh, strategic planning is this event that we do every once in a while where we have to pack in all the things we might have to do in three to five years, as opposed to the new thinking, which is let's understand our current situation, our most pressing strategic issues that we have to solve for now and those that we can defer to later. Because if we can, if you will, increase the throughput through our strategic planning value stream, if we can learn faster and better, then we can actually process more of these strategic initiatives over time. So that, that's one aspect of basic thinking. The other basic thinking is kind of unique to healthcare organizations and universities because they fall in the if you will, the category of professional bureaucracies or professional organizations where professional autonomy is they're very, uh, very important. These are really complex organizations. And it's hard to say no because everybody has veto powers. That makes this choice making difficult also. Mm-hmm. But if we can, if we can, you know, overcome those, it it and borrow from the professionals in the organization who do plan, do study, adjust thinking every day. Strategic planning is the same um, problem-solving approach that clinicians use with patients every day, and and clinical units use every day to try to make themselves better. Where are we today? What are the most pressing strategic issues when we look at our current state compared to our vision, uh, you know, our our ideal state? What do we need to solve for? Um, So therefore, what's that gap? How do we think we might close that gap? What experiments might we run to see if they are actually closing that gap? How quickly can we learn? And then, you know, how do we spread that learning? It's really the same type of thinking um, that and, and the better, the, the more muscle we build, the better we get at that kind of thinking. The more strategic initiatives we can actually process, and um, if we if we will prioritize them. Yeah. So you know, you're talking about PDSA being you know this foundational skill in uh, the strategic process. I mean, what, what are your thoughts? You know, if an organization has not been practicing any of this, and and there's that the idea of uh, you know, starting at the senior level, learning PDSA thinking, applying this to the strategy process. And then you've also got opportunities to do more uh, you know, bottom-up PDSA or you know, what, what a lot of people would call Kaizen. Um, you know, it, it, doing A3 problem solving is uh, another form of PDSA. Is there you know, a, a, a certain you know, sequence um, that, that you've seen or, or recommend in terms of, you know, should it start with the executives? Should, should executives even do kind of small Kaizen to build um, some of that uh, mental muscle or, or you know, if, if an organization's under a lot of competitive pressure, maybe they need to learn this and, and do this all at the same time, bottom up and top down. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, we we both heard that debate. You know, some people believe you you know you start with the front lines and you know kind of build some experience and some credibility there, and gradually move your way to the C-suite. There are others who believe that um, that type of development will never survive if you don't engage the C-suite in PDSA thinking, and there's no better way to engage the. 
C-suite and PDSA thinking, then getting them to apply it to their strategic management. So as usual, the answer turns out to be situational. Uh, in my situation, uh, you know, my CEO, John Toussaint, and, and others like Dean Bruner uh, saw the potential in this. They saw the connections. Um, I, I believe that we can bring the C-suite's attention to it sooner um, when we see this as a common language. PDSA thinking is a common language that we share with the front lines in a healthcare organization. So it, it, it has the potential of getting us on the same page. Uh, PDSA thinking applies in daily improvement. It applies to big rocks. When we had to uh, go through the same ICD-10 conversion as other health systems, we treated it as a PDSA. The problem we had to solve there was, how do we make this conversion to ICD-10 in a way that is least disruptive to providers? So we were constantly experimenting with how our different ways of rolling out would be more or less disruptive to providers. And that's how we ultimately, we were prepared early and better for ICD-10 because we took that PDSA approach to that big rock, if you will. The same thing is true to solving the biggest strategic issues, which could be, you know, a service line enhancement or serving a geographic area better or trying to figure out what our payer strategy is going to be. Though any of those solutions, they're all hypotheses based on, you know, what, you know, a set of assumptions that we're making. So um, when we apply that type of thinking and how we coach people to help us solve those problems, those big strategic problems at the strategic level, then we're starting to do the same and apply the same kind of thinking we're asking them to apply. And that's where we start to build credibility as a C-suite. Mm-hmm. So you talk about, um, and I've, I've, I've loved the word hypothesis, um, you know, this idea of you know, instead of implementing a change, we have a hypothesis that a change will be an improvement. Um, you know, instead of knowing this is the right strategy, we have a hypothesis uh, that, that this is the right strategy. And, you know, you, you, you talk also then about assumptions that, that go into uh, a, a strategy or a hypothesis. Can you talk more about the importance of going and testing assumptions? And the, the, you know, I love the question of what must be true can you elaborate on that? You, you bet. I mean, this was one of the biggest uh, lessons um, that I had to learn. Uh, it, my role was not, as I thought for years, to think up you know, you know, great ideas, throw those ideas over the wall, and if those ideas didn't work, it must have been somebody else's fault in, in execution. And, and you know, once again, this is what I learned from you know Roger Martin and, and from Matthew May that. Um, if I believe at all in systems thinking, when I initiate an action, when I begin a strategy, I am changing the world. I can't fully anticipate how customers are going to react. I don't know what others like competitors are going to do. I can't fully understand what my partners are going to do. There is no such thing as perfect information. So when I say, I think we should do this to close a certain gap, you know, at a major strategic level here, I have to acknowledge that I, I don't have perfect information 
Um, I'm making the best, most informed guess I can possibly make, but I have to ask myself what must be true for that scenario to play out the way that I want it to play out. That language, again, that comes from others. Um, And I think Matt May in his most recent book, Winning the Brain Game, um, explains why um, having to explore your deepest, darkest assumptions is so important if you're going to have breakthrough thinking. Because when you ask yourself what must be true, that's where you get into the most critical unknown assumptions. Your uh, hypothesis is very dependent on that assumption working. And and you really don't know the answer. And so that's where you begin your experimentation using lean learning loops, using design thinking, if you will. Um, so, I, you know, I've, I've used, you've heard me use an example of, of how I finally, you know, that got through my head when I was, that example I've got of the rural hospital administrator, if you want me to tell mm-hmm. that. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. You know, there's, there's, and when you get into the, you know, the, the design thinking, the lean learning loop uh, kind of activity, they often tell a story of, of Webvan, the, the company that um, was going to be early in on the space of ordering groceries online and having them delivered to your doorstep. And they, well capitalized company, very smart leadership, um, did all kinds of cutting edge market research to segment and size the market. Um, and then opened up their doors um, and went bankrupt in six months because they yeah. overbuilt the solution. So I'm learning all of this at the time when I and I get a phone call from one of our rural CEOs not long before I retired from ThetaCare. And he says, I have a, this idea that the reason people aren't coming from a town south of me up to my hospital is they have a transportation issue. So what would you think if I um, bought a van and hired a driver and did the marketing and started a transportation service? Well, I know what old Jeff would have done, which is I would say, well, let's do the market research. That's going to take us three months. And then, um, you know, that's a $100,000 idea. So we got to run it through the whole theta care decision process. That's going to take a few months. And so if you got the time, you know, in seven or eight months, you'll know if you get your $100,000. That would have been the old problem-solving way that we would have done things. Instead, all I had to say on that same phone call was, I don't know, that could be a good idea. <laughs> what must be true for it to work? Because I'm... I, Pretty sure you can buy a van. And I'll bet you can hire a driver, and I know you can do some marketing. And clear, you know, what must be true? What is the most critical assumption that you're making where you don't know the answer? And he said, Well, I don't really know if people are going to use it. So I just asked him, Is there a fast, cheap way that you can test that assumption? And he said, Yeah, you know, actually, there is a transportation service down here that I could rent on a per-use basis and do the marketing, kind of package it up and, and test that assumption. And so he, he ran uh, the, the, that test and, and found that it really wasn't solving the problem to the degree that he thought. And so he just pivots and he's on to his next idea for almost no time and no money. And so that's kind of, when I talk about basic thinking, you know, that's the kind of, of change in basic thinking that allows us um, greater throughput um, when it comes to, to testing and managing strategy. Yeah. Well, and it, and it builds on those ideas of testing ideas. You know, one, one thing I love about uh, the lean startup mindset are, you know, from Eric Reese, who I've, who I've talked to in the podcast here, um, 
the build, measure, learn cycles, these learning loops of, you know, uh, creating as, as you talk about there of, of not buying one van, but renting a van, like that's a small test of change, which is something we talk about in Kaizen and process improvement where, you know, I remember coaching one hospital, it wouldn't have been as expensive as, you know, buying a van or a bunch of vans, but they, you know, somebody had an idea of buying little holders that would clip onto a patient bed rail to, to hold their cell phone and their glasses and different things that tend to get misplaced or fall on the floor. And the old approach, they were starting to get on the path of, well, we've got 350 beds, so let's buy 350 of them. We'll research the, the right one and maybe get some input from people. And, you know, I sort of challenged them you know, to scale, scale that back to, you know, well, what's the smallest test of change? And well, we could buy one, you know, because there was risk that, you know, if they bought something that uh, was going to be impossible to clean and disinfect, or, you know, there are all sorts of things that, you know, maybe couldn't have been anticipated um, in, in advance, which, you know, I think speaks to that power of, um, you know, starting small, learning, uh, being willing to, to iterate and adjust or pivot or whatever terminology you're using, right? Yeah, I just wrote that down. Thank you for that nugget, that, the, the word smallest test of change. I'm going to start using that one. You know, in the book, I use an example um, of a, a health system. Uh, yeah, so this is a good example of a big strategic level, a health system that based on a lot of market research believed that they had found an unmet need in a segment of their community and had an idea uh, for um, meeting that uh, unmet need by hiring a whole fleet of people. Um, and so what they did, though, based on applying this kind of system to their strategic thinking, is they began with a small experiment in one of their sites to learn, could they actually create a unique value with customers that was relevant um, and so they began with this very small experiment and they began to build that out in a set of learning loops, um, found out what was working and what wasn't. So rather than, and I've seen another health system um, that uh, I've seen the proposal that said, we think we should hire a hundred extra people to do this certain thing because a focus group told us that this was an unmet need. Well, that's the old web van example. Um, and so, um, you know, as you say, start small, figure out um, where the value creation really lies, apply design thinking and lean learning loops, um, and figure out how to scale it from there. Um, yeah. it, it can work in so many situations. Yeah, and, and design thinking, that's a topic. Um, Ted Toussaint uh, and a colleague, um, Sarah, I'm blanking on her name at the moment, but, you know, they talked about some work that they did uh, in Massachusetts, combining concepts from design thinking, uh, lean startup methodologies to kind of iterate their way uh, to, to some new and innovative at-home care models. And, you know, I think, it's, I think it's really powerful. And, you know, there's, I think, big opportunities to reduce risk by having that experimentalist mindset. Like, you know, for example, um, Earlier this year when I was in Japan, there was a hospital there that had a brand new, I think it had been open just maybe two months, basically in a, an executive hospital area, which was, 
you know, designed, um, you know, they, the, the workflows were meant to be, um, you know, one that really valued even more so valued the time of, of their patients, which you'd like to think that would be a goal for everybody not just VIPs, but you know, the design was like a really nice modern hotel and it was just a totally different look and feel to the rest of the hospital. But the thing that was, you know, a bit cringy was, you know, that this place was a ghost town that I think, you know, there was this idea um, the old, you know, if we build it, patients will come model. And, you know, I think, boy, if they had been, if they had gone, I, I don't know the process they went to, to make that decision. And maybe it was too early to evaluate, uh, you know, is this not working or is it not working yet? <laughs> That's a, a tough judgment sometimes, but you know, I, I, that, that was a bit of a struggle because they might've gone through, you know, that, that, that planning path that had more certainty instead of, assumptions, the assumptions that VIPs from China would pay to come to this hospital, for example. I, I don't know if, I don't know how that's going to play out. Well, you know, I, I, I think this um, can be tougher the bigger the organization sometimes. Um, I don't have uh, this as great a, a problem when I'm working with, let's say, some smaller manufacturing service organizations or, uh, you know, again, smaller agencies that aren't used to being able to throw that kind of capital around the way we have historically thrown capital around in, in American healthcare. These folks are more used to the idea of because they've got limited um, energy and capital and they recognize it. And so they're much more willing, I think, to say, okay, I, I, I recognize that this idea that I have is, I, I see that it is a hypothesis. And so I am going to start small and build out this solution through learning loops. Um, there was a local organization here that did a great job of that. Um, uh, they applied this to two of the strategic issues they had. They stayed focused on those two strategic issues. And in both cases, they built out over a year um, two different solutions through lean learning loops that were very successful. Um, and so, again, the, now they've, they've just, in, by seeing the, this problem-solving approach, as something that applies at the strategic level, not just buried way down in the organization, but apply it at the strategic level, they have increased the throughput of their organization when it comes to managing strategic ideas. Mm -hmm. Well, when you talk about details of the organization, kind of my final question before we wrap up here, um, operational excellence or lean often, you know, is really taking place, you know, at, at frontline, departmental, operational level. Um, how, how do you view, you know, we'll, we'll call it lean, you know, is, is lean, can lean be a strategy or is it more, or do you think it's part of an overall strategic management system? Maybe, you know, necessary, but, but not fully sufficient. What, what, what are your views on that? Well, you know, I certainly believe in performance excellence. My introduction to performance excellence was through lean. And so um, uh, that, that was the, the background that I've had. And I've come to view it as a very powerful um, paradigm uh, in which we can create 
value. So I, I believe that lean thinking is is absolutely foundational and critical, at least for me, um, in in my approach to you know how can we create better value in the world. Now, um, can our strategy, you know, if we're doing lean, can that be our strategy? I guess if no one else is, we used to think that was. And at Theta Care, we felt that our differentiation was being created by the fact that we were applying lean and the rest of the industry was saying, no, lean can't be applied to healthcare. Um, but once healthcare began to adopt this whole idea of performance excellence and started to narrow the gap, then we had to begin to ask ourselves, okay, where are we going to apply this decision making? Because what, as a lean thinking organization, we still, we're, we're going to be looking for operational effectiveness. We still have big rocks to manage, and I've never seen an industry that has so many big rocks, which again, those are big non-differentiating projects. You got to do them, but they're not going to create any difference between, they're not going to create meaningful, unique value. So we've got all of that going on. We have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do differently? What new standards are we going to develop? What initiatives, new fresh initiatives are we going to develop that are going to create unique value in the eyes of our stakeholders that's very relevant? That strategy, that strategy deployment. So I believe for me, you know, is, is lean thinking, is, is performance excellence critical? Yeah, absolutely. You, you, I believe it's essential. Um, I believe it is, in, in the words you used, necessary. But it's, it's not sufficient because you have to ask yourself, where are you going to apply your efforts in the areas that are going to create the most important value for your customers and your patients that is going to make you unique and indispensable in their eyes. Yeah. To be more unique. And if you will, I, I love the expression, let's not do the wrong things writer through operational excellence. Sometimes we have to step back and ask those challenging questions of what should we be doing? What's our strategy? And, and I think that's where um, your, your book is a really uh, helpful addition um, to the literature for organizations that are trying to um, figure this out in healthcare. And I, I hope people outside of healthcare uh, will, will read the book here and, and that it'll prompt them um, with, some, with some good ideas. So, you know, again, our guest today has been uh, Jeff Hunter, author of the new, newly released and now available book, Patient-Centered Strategy, A Learning System for Better Care. Uh, Jeff, where can people buy the book? Where can they uh, find you online if they want to learn more about you or connect in some way. Yeah, the book they can find at Amazon.com. Uh, they also could find it at Catalysis at CreateValue.org. Um, uh, that's a Catalysis website. So that's where you can order the book. Uh, my website is uh, uh, JeffHunterStrategy.com. So that's the easiest way to reach me. There you are. So, well, um, Jeff, thank you again so much for the opportunity to talk today. Um, thanks for uh, talking about your book. And um, again, thank you for being a guest with us today. I appreciate it, Mark. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, 
email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.